0: Welcome to this edition of the Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Scott Trout, CEO and Managing Partner of Cordell & Cordell. Today for this month's podcast, I'm joined by Senior Litigation Partner, Kristen Zurich. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it.
0: So today uh, on this podcast, we're going to talk about one of the more troubling aspects of family law. And that is and and one of the things that are oftentimes difficult to deal with uh, from the attorney perspective and the client perspective and that is abuse and neglect issues in family law. Yes. And so I thought, what better person to have than one of our uh, litigation partners? And so let's generally talk, Kristen, about kind of the role abuse and neglect plays in family law. And we'll get more specific into it. But, you know, do you see it often in your practice? Uh, and and kind of if you do, kind of uh, how often are you incorporating that or raising those allegations in family law?
1: Oh, gosh. The A word, as I call it, is dropped in almost every one of my cases. In the initial consults that I do, you will hear that often, that mom is either physically abusive or emotionally abusive or verbally abusive to the children. And these are things that we have to wade through to figure out what's actually happening for the sake of the kids and for the benefit of our clients. Um, it, it involves a, a very big trigger of an awful lot of work on the attorney's part to see if what the client is saying is actually true and trying to prove it up.
0: So is this something that you said it it happens a lot in almost most of your cases, Uh, do you ask the question in a consult with the client or are they raising that issue? And uh, kind of walk us through that process for everyone listening.
1: Sure. So usually when people come in my door, I'm asking them, why are you here? What's caused the breakdown of your marriage? And why are you sitting across the table from me? And that's when all of the stuff spews out of, well, mom drinks, mom does drugs, mom's been verbally and physically abusive to me in front of the kids, mom's mean to the children, mom's verbally abusive to the children. So then I have to sort of triage the problems that they're bringing to the table to figure out how best to prove that up in the court of Mm -hmm. law.
0: So I assume that uh, in some states, I know, uh, you can use misconduct, abuse, not only obviously right. in custody issues, but you can use it uh, for property division, attorney's fees. Right. You can do it in Missouri.
1: You can do it in Missouri. The judges are—any sort of abuse allegations like that are much more um, important when it comes to custody than it does when it comes to money. Um, It's a very rare situation when the property division is implemented in any way, shape, or form, affected in any way, shape, or form by abuse on mom or dad's part. Um, Mm. But I've seen it happen before in my 15 years of doing this.
0: So with the prevalence of the allegations of abuse, uh, so are you asking clients— In these consults, because obviously I can imagine a guy would come in and let's just assume he has some bad facts. Uh, Maybe he has some discipline issues with the kids. I mean, they're not volunteering that information, are they? And if they're not, how are you getting it out of them? And are you at that consult?
1: That I'm not. If there's bad facts on our client side, on dad's side, usually uh, you don't come to the table and, and, and bring that in the first instance. Most folks that are sitting across the table from me are trying to make themselves look as best as possible. But as the case progresses, as I start to speak to mom's attorney, that's when I find out that there very well might be some issues on my client's side. And so if mom you know, pulls and tries to make allegations against my client, then a guardian ad litem would be appointed. And I know we'll talk about that in a minute. But... But... But if I start to hear some of those things they are swirling, I will usually try to work with my client to, and it's a a strong word, but to clean him up a little bit. So if he has problems with discipline, I'll send him, hey, I'm going to send you to a parenting class to give you a little bit better tools as to how to react instead of screaming or hitting. Um, I will suggest that he go to counseling to deal with his divorce, since divorce is a very emotional thing. And men, in my experience, process it a heck of a lot differently than women do.
0: So... And we use we're throwing around the word or the words abuse and neglect loosely. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is a physical, but there are many other types. Can you talk about the types of abuse and neglect that you've seen? Uh, in the number of years that you've been practicing sure. family law.
1: I have. I've seen, unfortunately, seen physical abuse when the kids have come back from another parent's home with marks on them. I have seen, unfortunately, sexual abuse cases where I've we've had to make referrals to the Children's Advocacy, Advocacy Center to figure out um, if indeed that did happen. I've seen verbal abuse on the kids and kids shrinking when they're with the other parent. I've seen emotional abuse where the kids don't, they, they act differently with both parents because the households are so different. And I've, see now. uh, Pretty routinely, I see alienation, which is a form of emotional abuse to the children.
0: So how do the judges feel? I mean, generally, uh, in your experience, when you're going to court, you're trying your cases, uh, are there varying perceptions, reactions uh, by the court system, or degrees of reaction based upon the, the types of abuse that you've just uh, stated.
1: Sure. The physical abuse and the physical abuse kinds of things the courts take obviously hugely seriously. They're going to make you either get a guardian ad litem or refer it out to the police or refer it out to the juvenile court system. So they don't sit well with that at all. The emotional and the physical, the emotional abuse and the alienation, that's stuff that you have to really jump through some hoops to prove. So that's working with psychologists, working with custody evaluators to because the judge is just in any divorce, is to make sure the kids can go back and forth between mom's and dad's house with the least amount of friction and, and problems possible. The judge wants to make sure that the two households for the kids are substantially similar. And if they're not, and if there's huge problems in one household, it's the judge's job to fix it.
0: All right. So, let's talk about a guy that comes in, uh, has some bad facts, uh, or at least bad allegations, mm-hmm. whether they're true or not. You know, allegations that he's either physically or emotionally abusing the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do? I mean, what, what's a guy to do with those? You know, how does he defend himself? What are your suggestions? How does he document? Let's just kind of walk through what you would tell a client. And, you know, there's guys out there right now who, I mean, I see, I've seen it throughout my practice the, you know, the allegations are loosely thrown out mm-hmm. and some are false and it's terrible. So what do you tell a client what are they going to do?
1: Sure. The, The struggle in situations like that is when your client is coming with these allegations that are being made against them, it's like the spotlight's on them. And so in order to be successful, I've got to get the spotlight off of dad and put it back on mom for the bad behavior she's doing in terms of alienation or in terms of trying to turn the kids against dad emotionally. And so I need to get some other people on my client's side other than me. So I would get him to a counselor immediately if I needed to. So I have someone who can vouch for my client's mental health state and vouch for the fact that he's, when he relays to his children, he's not abusive. Um, I would ask for a guardian that litem him in court in a heartbeat because kids, unfortunately, are easily manipulated in a divorce case. And one of the things that I have found in my 15 years of doing this is that kids are more apt, unfortunately, to be hurt, to hurt the parent that they know will take them back. That if one parent is emotionally abusive to them, they will say unfortunate things about the other parent because they know that parent loves them unconditionally and they'll, 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 they'll always be there for them regardless of how they act mm-hmm. to that parent. And so a guardian ad litem is, is usually one of your best resources in cases like this where the allegations are flying fast and furious because they can investigate and they can order psychological testing and they can get to the bottom of the mud slinking contest.
0: Yep. So before we talk about The Guardian, uh, and, and there I know there are names uh, that are used in the various states, and we'll talk about really what that person is. But let's talk about, you know, I always tell my clients, you want to avoid the he said, she said, because without third party witnesses, your guys dead. You know, right. it's typically, I mean, that's part of the challenge for us at Cordell representing guys is, you know, the stereotypes and, and, and the system working against him in some respects. And it's made great you know leaps and bounds forward no doubt but what does a guy do i mean do they do they get experts do they get third party witnesses and who they certainly can't be friends and family members most likely i mean obviously you're going to have a, a a number of those but what do you do to, you know, what do you tell a guy? What does he, what does he do to secure witnesses? Sure.
1: So there, uh, obviously there are friends and family members that have seen you interact with your wife or seen you interact with your kids that can speak volumes about what's happening. When I explain a guardian ad litem is put on a case of mine, I'll tell my clients, look, you know, the only way for them to really understand that he said, she said that is coming is to get the full circle of the story. And the more people that can corroborate your story and your side of the story about what a good dad you are and how involved you are in the kids' lives and and it's mom that comes home screaming out the, and your neighbors can hear her when she gets home every day. Instead of you, the more, the more often your story can be told by other people, the more. Uh it's, it's got a higher level of veracity. Mm-hmm. I always ask my clients, what's mom going to say and who's going to back her up? Mm-hmm. And if they only, oh, it's just her mom and her sister, well, then you automatically get a higher level of credibility because there's other people that can back up your story. But that's what I spoke of earlier is making sure you have a cadre of people around you that can support your client's story. So once a guardian is appointed because mom has made allegations that your client's abuse over your client's disciplining their children wrongly or your client's treating the kids horribly, the more people you can have behind him to tell mm-hmm. his story, the more more the more truthful you seemed, not only the guardian but the judge, because the judge can't wade through it. That the guardian's really vested with that authority to really do the investigation. Mm-hmm. And frankly, one of the things I have to tell my clients is, if I have to expect the worst case, I have to expect the kids are going to testify. So how do you, as a parent, routinely trap your kids when you know they're lying to you? Because I'm going to have to do those same kind of things in court.
0: So you talk about kids testifying. Uh, Kind of a slippery slope.
1: Oh, boy. Is it ever? You know,
0: and I remember, you know, my practice, I've had it, honestly, in the 20 years I've been doing this, 20 plus, uh, I've had kids testify three times. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about that because I have clients all the time want to put, you know, their thought is the kid's their best defender, perhaps, uh, or could be the most truthful in some respects about whether or not dad's abusing or mom's abusing. But, uh, you know, how many times have you seen kids testify or you had them testify and when they do... Uh, mine have never been in open court. It's been nope. in, you know, in chambers. So just, just talk about that because I know guys out there right now are thinking, yeah, my, my kid's going to testify. And, and maybe they're 17 or 18 and it's a different story. Right. But typically the ones that I've had, you know, they're in their you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. So let's talk a little bit about that.
1: And and that is, if there's a fight between mom and dad and mom is making allegations of abuse against dad, the kid was obviously an eyewitness. The kid was home. The kid heard everything. The kid saw some things. So the kid's voice probably needs to be heard. And so if the judge wants to hear from the child or you need that child's testimony, the judge will usually do it in camera. So what that means is mom and dad are excluded from the courtroom. So there's no fear from the kid's perspective of what they say in court will be heard by mom and dad, and then they'll fear repercussions at Mm -hmm. home. So what usually happens... It could be one of twofold. The judge can take the kiddo and bring the kiddo in chambers and ask questions of kiddo themselves, and the lawyers would just be in there sort of listening. What's more common is that the kiddo will come into court, and the lawyers are all allowed to ask questions of the child, but you have to ask questions in a much different manner. I am much more aggressive, obviously, on cross-examination of a parent than I am of a 12-year-old child.
0: Mm -hmm. So, you know, it brings the times in which I typically see... Uh, these allegations, my client would come in with an order protection, mm-hmm. and, and in Missouri specifically, perhaps a child order protection. So let's talk a little bit about that because you know that to me, and I have said this in seminars that we do around the country, it tends to be the single most overabused uh, remedy, uh, at least in in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, because it's simply it's one sided. You make an allegation that doesn't need any proof just has to have the appearance of meeting the elements of the order protection and a threat uh, or physical violence and they get uh, an order protection. Correct. So what do you do with a guy that, that presents to you uh, this order? let's just say it's a child order protection where mom's making allegations that dad is assaulted or abused or, or neglected the child. What do you do What does he do?
1: Sure. You have to go to court and you have to take it to hearing. Um, nine times out of ten, mom has only filed these things to try to get a leg up in a divorce. Unfortunately, in our jurisdiction, um, they don't cost anything to file. And so, what I've usually found is women are filing these things to try to get a leg up in a divorce early on. They're trying to get custody of the home. They're trying to get custody of the kids without paying the filing fee and actually filing for divorce. And so, one of the the, the best strategies, because I think orders of protections, frankly, are, are red herrings. The likelihood of anything happening to the to the the depth and breadth of what mom has claimed in the filing a slim to none I mean, and so what you end up having to do is you have to file for divorce to be able to start the case whereupon the judge has a much broader view as to how to rule on questions of custody and questions of support. And then you try to minimize and try to get the judge to just keep your folks apart mm-hmm. and get rid of the child order. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I haven't had a child order that the other side pushed a hearing in probably the last three years. Yeah. Because it's just a negotiation strategy. It's right. effective. Yeah, It's effective as heck because it, it kicks your client out. They now don't have custody of the kids for two weeks and they're, they're left with no, literally no moves on the chessboard. But right.
0: Forward, and they're going to get that either way, whether it's a child order protection, an adult abuse order protection. Yeah. Either way, perhaps they won't be seeing the kids. So, what? Let's talk about because there's some dangers, and I always counsel my clients uh, when they want to go to a hearing, because oftentimes you have to. Right. And you either because the allegations are so ridiculous, perhaps, or they're faulty in their face. What are the risks of losing? Sure. You know, what happens if you have a finding of abuse? Uh, and obviously there's some issues with owning and possessing a firearm that we won't talk about. But uh, what happens in your custody case, in a guy's custody case, if he takes that order of protection to trial and the judge simply just wants to take the easy road, even though perhaps the facts aren't so great – uh, for mom, and, and as she's pled and rules against the client, what happens?
1: The the negative part about forcing an order of protection to hearing for me uh, is twofold. Number one, if you're successful and you actually get it knocked out of court, there is nothing that stops mom from going in the next day and filing one again. Mm-hmm. There there's no there's no race judicata. There's no concern. She can literally go back the next day. So you are continuing to fight the fire. Um, but my bigger problem is if I take it to hearing and the judge really rules against my client and find that my client was abusive to mom. It has a negative effect on the custody statutes. My custody statutes, you have to plead to the court that there has not been any sort of domestic violence. And if there has, the judge can limit your time with the children. And so that's where, upon some settlement negotiations and dealing with these things, to just keep mom and dad apart and try to get this red herring of abuse off the table to focus mm-hmm. more on custody and what's best interest of the kids, is what makes the most strategic sense. Because your client could lose, and if it is, if it is, a, if it is entered and it's against your client, it's a misdemeanor. So now you have criminal background. So it's going to show up on a criminal background check. It'll show up if it's a kid one, it'll show up on a child abuse and neglect search. So if you wanted to volunteer at your church and spend time and coach your kid's baseball team, you're not going to be able to do Mm. that if you have a negative finding against you.
0: And and my clients, and I think the big struggle for guys that are thinking about this or facing it is that they want to, they want to prove themselves right. You know, Mm -hmm. these are spurious allegations and, 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 Keep in mind, there are some that are true, no doubt. Right. I mean, not to say every single one is a stretch or false, because that's just not true. We know that. We have guys that have bad facts and they realize it. And if they don't, then we bring them to the table to get them done. But the point being is, for me, it was always a challenge, and I imagine for you as well, uh, to tell your client, look, we need to get this resolved because the, the negatives outweigh the positives if we take it to trial and lose. Because judges are derailed by emotion, Jail or judges try to take the safe route at times and status quo. And they may, I remember, gosh, in the early 90s, there was a judge on the bench who would always say, Well, look, I'm just going to issue an order. I don't care what the facts are. I'm just going to keep you both away from each other. And that's just the way it's going to be. And we didn't have many choices, you know, because it's a lengthy appeal process Mm -hmm. and your chances are losing. So the the, the point is, is what do you do with, how do you counsel clients, the ones are listening now that have that, that are faced with that decision? Do I try to get this resolved, um, you know, agree to something that's maybe outside of the order protection? How do you counsel them and tell them it's in the best interests that they do it? You sure. know, Knowing the consequences of a finding if you were to lose. Sure.
1: The, what all my clients want to do is be heard. Mm-hmm. Where there's been spurious allegations, when they've been accused of doing something that there is no way on God's great green earth that they did, they want to be heard and they want the chance to tell their story. So they're, you know, whether you have it in a limited form in an order of protection or whether you have it in a full-on divorce trial, I would much prefer to take his entire case to trial because then I could use mom's filing of the adult abuse order of protection or the child order of protection and her willingness to back off those allegations after she got him out of the house and kept him away from mm-hmm the mm-hmm. kids. I use it to destroy her credibility. Yeah. And, and so when, you're, when your client is looking for his credibility boost in front of the judge, for him w- to be willing to take a stand to say, look, I don't like this. I'm It was wrong, but I'm willing to take a step back for the sake of the kids and for the sake of moving our case forward and for the sake mm-hmm. of getting me divorced from this woman that's causing me all sorts of distress, it makes you look like the stronger person and the stronger parent of
0: the yeah. judge. And, and you know, I know we're, we focus a lot and we have because typically on, on guys being and I'm not going to use the word, I mean, the recipient or, mm-hmm. or of the allegation, you know, someone who is the aggressor. But but we have guys that are the victims. Oh, or that's true. I mean, of physical violence, no doubt. Um, and I have one, and, I, and and we'll just jump forward, and then I'm going to kind of loop back into mm-hmm. the process here. But uh, I can tell you what guys face is, that, to me, probably one of the more stronger challenges is convincing the bench that they are victims of physical violence. Correct. As a guy. Correct. And and, and I always tell this story because it, it was so unbelievable in my experience and my walk with the very first time I had a guy uh, whose wife got upset that the marriage was over. And and our guy was pretty clean in terms of facts. It just they just fell out of love. Well, she decided to take a, a frying pan to his face. And, you know, he was laying on the couch asleep and she just smashed him across the face with a frying pan and broke his orbital socket, mm-hmm. so he goes obviously to the hospital, and, and you know he has to have surgery, and so we file an order of protection, and uh, it was denied, uh, and so I walk back in, and, and so it's set for a full hearing because it was he wasn't granted an ex parte, which is kind of without notice, and I looked at the judge, and I said, Judge, let me show you the pictures of my client's face, and his police report, and Mom was arrested and charged with assault. And his, the, the judge's reaction was, why didn't he defend himself? Right. And it was crazy. I looked at the judge like he had literally lost his mind. Because, And I even said, I said, Judge, if I came into you representing the woman, you would never, ever say, why did she not defend herself? And that's kind of the, and I don't know what your experience is, but ultimately we never did prevail. A judge convinced uh, us to just raise it at trial in the domestic case And we had kids in there and we didn't get any relief. And that is to me, one of the huge stereotypical issues that guys face when they're the victim Uh is, you know, we're supposed to be men, you know, and strong and capable of defending this woman who was obviously one half of his size anyway, but yet she took a weapon, you know, and that's, and obviously it's unusual, but I mean, I don't know what your experience is, but that was my first, you know, experience many, many years ago, to the stereotypes that guys face they're supposed to be the aggressor and this guy was the victim I mean he got put in the hospital right
1: the, the hardest part that I see in my practice is when guys are a victim of abuse, when they call the police and they bring the police over to the house, the police, first of all, never believe them because they, the police are preconditioned to believe when they come over to deal with the domestic that dad's the problem and they need to yank dad. Mm-hmm. I've had clients that have told me when the police have come and they could hear mom yelling in the background on the phone and they could hear this the high-pitched screams of her like, losing it. When the cops came, they still took the issue with our client. Yeah. And the other thing, unfortunate part that I find is because the cops don't believe them and they're reluctant to take their story in the first instance, the, the men don't want to see it through. I've mm. had a number of clients that have come and sat across the table from me, told me that they've been abused by them, their wives. They have told me the stories. It meets the statutory definition of abuse, but they never went to court to get an order of protection mm. because it's just not – men don't think they're going to be believed. Yeah. And so I, I guess my advice to men out there that if you are undergoing abuse and you are taking abuse from your wife, you need to go and report it. Yeah. You don't have to. T- you don't have to stand for it just because you're a guy,
0: right? I mean, there's remedies available. I mean, that's the point: is take advantage of them, right. and it does, it can, and probably does. If you're successful, put you in a very powerful position. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always refer to it as you're driving the bus, and put your wife as a passenger, and you're, you know, you're steering it, and that's the way. It's really, the kind of the ultimate goal is to not be a passenger, correct? It, out of control, and and oftentimes. Uh, I guess irrespective of abuse allegations, guys are simply passengers. And part of what, you know, at least I talk to clients about here at Cordell is let's try to take control of our own case. Mm-hmm. Let's try to be driving the bus. And so, yeah, I, mean, I think that's just to me when, when I thought about abuse and neglect, that I'll never forget that moment um, when I was so stunned that mm-hmm. the judge looked at it and we, we just couldn't prevail. And actually I took it on appeal just because it was, I wanted to prove a point. Um, that, that the stereotypes still exist. And mm-hmm. uh, it is difficult for guys. So let, let's let move on to, we've talked a lot about what this guardian ad litem is. And every state around the country has a different word for it. It could be child advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is typically, when a court appoints someone, what is that when there's abuse and neglect issues or someone? Tell, tell everyone the listeners what that is and what the process is typically, and I know you'll speak the process-wise as it relates to Missouri only, right. but typically the general appointment of this person will, will um, be relevant across the country. Sure.
1: So whether, uh, uh, it, you know, we call it a guardian ad litem, some states call it a conservator, some states call it a child advocate, but one is usually triggered when there are allegations of abuse or neglect raised. So whether it's emotional abuse, heck, I, I just had one appointed where there was allegations of... Um, educational neglect that we have a child who's severely behind and my, and that the child needs to get caught back up and mom isn't doing what she needs to do to make that happen. And so the, the judge appointed this person to, to weed through the he said, she said stuff in the case to do it. an, an investigation is a strong word, but mm-hmm. they are going to go through the facts to figure out exactly what's happening and make recommendations to the court that is in the child's best interest. And so when mom is throwing allegations at you and you don't know how to defend them, it's time to get a third party on your side. Mm -hmm. And a a guardian will do the work. I mean, no matter where you get them appointed, as long as you appoint someone that you trust and you know professionally or your lawyer knows professionally, they will do the work because they have to answer to the court if they don't. And so they will talk to mom, they'll talk to dad, they'll talk to family members, they'll talk to friends, they'll talk to the kids, Mm -hmm. which is probably one of the most important things that I've seen lately in cases where the guardians are now refusing to even meet with the kids when mom would bring the kid to the office and the dad would bring to the kids the office because you as a guardian can really tell when the kids are prepped to have a conversation with a parent mm-hmm. or with a, w- w- when the parent drives them. Yeah. Um, but if you, the guardians will meet the kids on their own territory. Mm -hmm. Now that school's back in session, I just had a guardian reach out to say, hey, uh, I'd really like to go meet with the kid at school, so I'm going to reach out to the counselor and I'm going to go talk to the kid at school, but I'm not going to let mom and dad know what had happened so the kid can't be prepped to say whatever mom and dad want them to say. And so after they do this level of investigation, they're going to report back to the court what they actually did find and what guardian, once they actually weed through the he said, she said stuff, yeah, there might be a bad fact or two on your client's behalf, but there's also going to be a bunch of bad facts about mom. So that's the getting the spotlight again off mm-hmm. of your client and trying to shine it a little bit back on mom to give your client a more equal playing field in front of the judge.
0: So I think guardians are typically attorneys, right? Correct. And so I've always told clients, I mean, there's some risks. There's pros and cons. Um, I, because, and I always put it this way, and it, and it, and it can be misinterpreted, but it's a harsh way to say this. And I always say that guardian ad litem appointment or an attorney advocate or a child representative, whatever the term is in your state, uh, it's mo- it can be much like calling an electrician and appointing an electrician to do an investigation. Now, guardians are trained, no doubt. But I think they're asked to do an investigation and analysis and recommendation that perhaps, depending upon the circumstances, far exceeds what their competency level would be. Meaning that a psychologist may have a better chance and far more educated and trained than an attorney. I'm not. There's no way that I could be I would feel confident in making a custody recommendation mm-hmm. in certain cases. And so that's why I said, might as well get an electrician to do it. It's the same kind of standard. <laughs> that's harsh. I mean, it is harsh, <laughs> but the point is that's the risk. I would right. tell my clients, that's the risk perhaps is that you were asking someone, you're putting the lives of your children and your future in the hands of a third party that one, you don't know, uh, and two, uh, that ultimately will align with one side or the other. Meaning that in my experience, it's like having two attorneys against you. If you're, you can't convince the guardian I'm on your side to, to make the recommendation, it's tough.
1: I'm not going to disagree with that, mm-hmm. but I look at a guardian as just another. It's a quasi judge. It's someone else mm-hmm. that I have to I have to bring to the table to my client's side of the story. But knowing that they have some legal background and knowing that they are much more sometimes adept at doing the statutory analysis to get to the to the custody schedule that I want than perhaps the judges, I find them a lot easier to win over and at least I know that they're going to do the work okay mm-hmm. so realistically I've had some guardians that have obviously gone against me mm-hmm. but when they come in the court I will put them on the stand I will cross-examine them about what they've done in terms of their work mm-hmm. and if they don't do the necessary follow-through if they haven't met with the kid more than once if they've only talked to mom's side rather than dad's well then you expose their bias and the judge is already disinclined to listen to what they have to say because I've proven their bias so yeah that is very true that you very well might Get a guardian who doesn't like your client, or who is now biased against your client. But then I have a better shot with the judge. Mm-hmm. So if I have a shot to get somebody else on my client's side to help him, help his story, to win over what I want from my client, I'm going to do it, even if the even if there are risks, because if you work if you work a case correctly and ask the guardian to do the work and lead them down the path you want them to view, um, it's very hard for them not to come around to what you want. And as, as a as a as a typical male attorney, that I'm, I'm representing mm-hmm. the guys instead of the women. When you have that, you are literally fighting against mom who wants most of the custody for herself. Right. That's the routine situation. Yeah. And so I would much rather try to have somebody else on my side to show her that dad's not a bad guy. He really wants right. to be involved in the kids' lives and to be able to get somebody else to support his position other than mom crossing arms and saying, nope, the kids are mine.
0: So if you have bad facts, do you want a guardian?
1: If I have bad facts, I will want a guardian, but I will want a counselor on the back end to help massage the bad facts. Yeah. So if I have a client that come came in and said, God curse, you know what? I really I, I was really upset. I did really yell at her. I raised my voice. I, I threw something at her in front of the mm-hmm. kids and I I really regret it. Right. Well he's gonna go to counseling, he's gonna talk to somebody about it, and so I have somebody else who's willing to come into court to say, you know, a data tone for what he did, and he knows that he did something wrong, and he's never gonna do it again. Yeah. Because then you show when there when there is something bad on your side, if you take the steps to fix it, you're showing that, yeah, you know what, I am human, but I recognize I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10 on the other side of the table, they're not making that same level of atonement. Mm. So part of being a really good attorney is positioning yourself to look like the more reasonable party. Yeah. And so that in in any case like this, especially where there's abuse, I've got to get to the level of reasonableness for my client to be successful.
0: So then I've said this to, to guys in seminars that we do, Educational seminars. I always said that I don't think there's a set of facts absent significant child abuse that I couldn't deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, drug, alcohol, gambling, agree, whatever. I mean, I think you can position your client through counseling, treatment, convincing the guardian. I mean, I think we can do that. We can deal with those types of issues. Okay, so so let's talk about how often do you get to pick the guardian.
1: If, you, if the other side acknowledges that one is needed, mm-hmm. then you'll always have a conversation with the other side about someone you both can agree upon. So usually when I'm doing it, I'll, I'll hand over a list of five to 10 people that I, I know will do the work. And then I let the other side pick, knowing full well that one of the 10 people will, will be fine. Yeah. Um, if the judge randomly picks one, sometimes that happens. Sometimes the judge is trying out somebody new and wants to give them a shot. Well, then I have to go into full sale mode. Then I yeah. have to be able to work with my client to position his case and his responses in his meeting with the guardian ad litem in such a way that it wins the client, uh, the the guardian over to his side. So, you know, I guess maybe now's a good time to sort of talk about what's going to happen in some of your meetings with a guardian. Yeah. I I mean, they're going to want your history of how you and mom met, and they're going to want to know how you and mom broke up. But they're going to try to ask you some really tricky questions to see what kind of insight you personally have of of yourself as a parent. So a common question they're going to ask is, what is your strength as a dad? Hmm. What, what do you do? What do you do well? What could you do better? And you had better have an answer to come in to be able to say that. So, yeah, if it is, yeah, I yell a lot when I'm really upset, maybe I can find a better way to deal with my anger when it comes off. That shows some insight on the guardian's behalf.
0: Yeah. It's like I always tell the clients when you're testifying, you better know all your kids' friends' names. Bingo. What size shirt and shoes and pants they wear. I mean, it's funny when, you know, I started doing this and I have five kids, I was thinking, gosh, I don't even know what size shirt they wear. And I'm not getting divorced. But, you know, it is. It's kind of falling into those roles again. But it's about preparation. You know, I always talk to client appearance and preparation and presentation.
1: It's the most important. I had in that same vein, I had a guardian bring out the pediatric records because every time a kid Mm -hmm. gets shots, you have to initial for it, point it out. Hey, if you're really so involved, how come you didn't go to any of these shot appointments in the first five years? And my client couldn't explain his way around it. Right. Um, but it, it is preparation and it's having some insight on what you do well as a parent. And, it, you know, another trick question guardians will routinely ask you is what does mom do that's good? Now, when you're in the heat of contested custody litigation, it is very, very hard for you to find anything positive to say about your ex. I fully acknowledge that. Mm. But you have to pull the emotion aside and look at her as a mom to your kid and find something Remotely nice you can say yeah, about her, yeah. because then that pitches because you have to expect that she's hot, mad, and she's not going to be saying those same nice things about you. Yeah. So what you've just done by that and to in being able to lob a compliment over the table to your ex. You have made yourself look more reasonable to the guardian. Yeah. If she came in and just railed on your client for forty-five minutes, but your guy said, "You know what? I know she hates me, but uh, I, but I, I appreciate how well she takes care of my kids. She's really involved with him. She reads them a story every night. I think that's really great."
0: Be normal. You know. Right. I mean, it is a sense <laughs> right. of normal. I mean, it's one of the most difficult times in your in the guy's life, but it is. It's gosh, preparation is everything, and that's kind of one of the things I want to get across and have you talk about, which is so key. Is and I think honestly. Uh, it's perhaps one of the plagues in family law is we have attorneys who don't focus on the more important things of, you know, I've talked about this in seminars, financial statements, just reviewing, but more importantly, prepping for meetings with the guardian, gosh, spending some time doing that. So um, let's talk quickly in transition. We, have, we, we touched briefly in the very beginning about parental alienation syndrome, and I talk about this in the, my seminars at night. And I, and I asked the question, and I can tell you I've been doing this for a long time, and over 100 seminars probably, and I always say, how many guys have heard of parental alienation syndrome? Raise your hand. And it's one, maybe two. Okay. And so I'm sure there's guys out there now. They're Googling it while we're talking. But tell them a little bit about PAS how you use it. We have, you know, five minutes left uh, in our podcast. So will not you just kind of go through that a little bit?
1: Sure. So you're going to find, this is something that is talked about routinely in family law circles. And this is a situation that you find yourself in whereupon the kid in the situation just wants to have nothing to do with the other parent. No matter what you try to do to break back in with into your relationship with your child, if your kid is completely and utterly turned off, the fair word to use for it is alienation. So whether the kid was alienated by some of your own behaviors, or whether the kid was alienated by things mom has said or done, that's something that you need to address if you have any hope of having a relationship with that child. I mean, one of the you know with through the research that I've done and through the work that I've done with psychologists. You can identify alienation by, you know, a, a kiddo that vilifies the other parent, that just it views them as the uh, as the guy in the, I mean, the worst guy ever you could imagine. Mm-hmm. They have a litany of all of the things dad has ever done wrong. Mm-hmm. If you ask the kid what dad, what dad's done right, the kid can't come up with an answer. That mm-hmm. The story seems like really, really rehearsed. Right. Because moms helped him rehearse it but and there's no justification for that level of hatred that the kid has towards that parent. Hmm. Um for example, I had a case where a mom severely alienated the older child from my client. The kid got on the stand and just railed on dad for 20 minutes. Wow. And the the judge said tell me something nice about dad and the kid couldn't do it. Oh. And the judge found that, that mom had alienated the kid from dad. And so in his final order, the kid was, if kid didn't go and see my client, my client got a discount on his child support because of mom's bad acts. Yeah. But when you have that level of alienation, you either need to make sure the guardian is 100% on your side in terms of proving that up, or you need to get a psychologist who's able to come into court Prove that's what it is to mm-hmm. be able to get some relief for it. To either force visitation, force therapeutic reunification, or if you can't, and that's not an option, well then at least mom, you know, gets it in her, gets a financial problem because of the bad behavior she right. did and ruining that relationship.
0: I mean, it's terrible. It's, uh, and I can tell you, well, I tell guys, 98 percent of guys will see some form or variance of PAS. Mm-hmm. It, it is natural, and I always give them example. And my example, I mean, very similar to instances is uh, dad moves out because one of the things that guys move out is they just don't want to be in the house or they're physically removed. And mom begins this pattern of alienation where child says, well, why hasn't dad come to my ball games?" Well, you know, um, he's got a new family now and he's with his new girlfriend and uh, he's got a new child. It's her child but I will always be here for you. And I loved you and I wanted to keep daddy and mommy together, but daddy had different plans. I mean, can you imagine what that does to a seven, eight, nine, 10 year old? Just devastating. Turns the child or why didn't I, daddy call me on my birthday? Well, we know dad did. Mom just hung up on dad and dad dropped off a present, but mom threw it in the trash. Right. So, you know, mom will say, well, you know, um, since daddy moved out, he doesn't give us any money anymore but I'll be here for you and I'm gonna work three jobs just to make sure I can get you a birthday present.
1: What I usually find, and those, are all, those yeah. are all very true examples, and you see that routinely in high-conflict custody cases. Um, but I've literally seen both sides of the alienation coin. I've seen children that have refused to have a relationship with the dad and the mom has been hurt financially as, as a result. But on the flip side, I've seen kids that have had enough of the alienating behavior. Mm. A mom, they can't take it anymore. They notice that dad's house is less stressful. There's less of a constant focus on the divorce. And so the kids will decamp. The alienators mm. will have been successful enough to alienate the kids. Right out of their own relationship with them, right. so I've seen both. I've seen both sides of the coin. But if you're a dad that finds yourself in that situation where your kiddo does not want to have any contact with you, you owe it to your kid to be able to help extricate him from the situation and do everything you can, humanly do to force contact. I right. could not imagine as a parent walking away from that without giving my all. Oh, no, no. So.
0: I've I had a client who had been uh, divorced and the subject of not only parental alienation during the divorce, but post-divorce. And we tried to do reunification. Uh child was 17. just wasn't going to happen. She said to the judge, look, we uh, you know we hired experts. We hired counselors. We did joint sessions. And she testified in court and said, look, if you make me see my dad, I'm just going to run away. And the expert said, yeah, she's going to run. And she'll neither parent will find her. And so the, the results are devastating. And so it's really about taking action. Not only when we talk about abuse, but neglect things and like this. And so don't ignore it. I mean, kind of the, the, the recommendation is to do something about it and take action because the results are devastating. And ultimately, that can just become about money. Um, not that that is any uh, consolation prize, but ultimately that may be the only punishment by limiting the amount of money that goes to mom.
1: I, I just had a case where upon mom alienated the child from dad. Uh, Kid wanted no contact with dad, and mom wanted full custody. So mom yeah. signed over custody, and my guy got off the hook financially for college and for child support. So, you know, if an alienator wants what she wants, she can certainly run for it, but it doesn't mean she's going to get it. Yeah. And so the what I would tell you is is clients listening, if, if you're, if like, facing this situation, go to your attorney, and your attorney had better have a, a strategy way to get you what you want.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: You're, if you have an attorney that's skilled in doing this, they will tell you the steps you need to get through to get your relationship back with your yeah. kid if it's even possible.
0: And it's about finding a, and it, whether it's us or anyone that just does family law. I mean, that's always my recommendation. When you're interviewing someone, they should just do one area in the law. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that. It's like a doctors. You know, If I have cancer, I'm not going to go to a general practitioner. No. You know, I'm going to go to an oncologist because that's what they, they specialize in. So last thing we can talk about very, very briefly is Uh, the issues around abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Guys, oftentimes, I want her drug tested. So how do you deal with that? The guy comes right out of the gate saying, she's smoking marijuana, she's doing drugs, uh, and, you know, we talk about their their history together. Right. What do you tell a client?
1: All right. So I tell a client, when was the last time you saw her do it? When mm-hmm. can you prove that she's actually done it? I will go into a long uh, explanation about how I can prove in terms of drug tests, how far back it goes. When you do a hair follicle test in terms of the uh, how much drug they find in her hair will show how much she's used. Mm-hmm. But the caveat is if the judge is going to order her to do it, he's going to order you to right. do it too. And God help you if you're dirty. Right. Exactly. You <laughs> right. complain
0: and then, you know, it's a uh, podcast the kettle black, right?
1: And, and, and the same thing goes for alcohol. I mean, alcohol mm-hmm. is not illegal. And so we acknowledge that, but you yeah. have to use it in such a way that it's responsible around your children. And So if you are going to make a huge issue of her being an alcoholic, if the kids come back and say, yeah, we saw dad drinking three beers with pizza the other night, mm-hmm. well, the guardian's not going to listen to a darn thing you're saying. So yeah. you have to expect that if you're the one lobbying the allegation, number one, you might be drug into it too. And you might be forced to have to have those same right. kind of tests. But number two, you might have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a client demand SoberLink on, on 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 mom saying that she uses she uses alcohol this time when she has the kids. SoberLink is expensive; it's like three hundred bucks a month. My wow. client had to pay for it for three months to see if she was actually on alcohol. And so you have to expect that if you're going to make these allegations, you better back them up.
0: Yeah, and be able to prove it. I mean, I I will tell the clients: look, if if it comes back clean, I mean, it does your your kind of you know, credibility damage, yes. especially when you go forward. You just wasted time. So, you just have to be certain because that is that's a big thing, but the, you know it's a risk reward. I mean, if you can you know get a positive test on her, huge huge right. payoff potentially. but you got to be prepared. you have to be clean uh, and so that's kind of uh, my perspective on on at least drug testing and hair follicle or ways just have the communication with your attorney about it because it's it's a, another opportunity when you're dealing with abuse and neglect issues so all right. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, I want to thank Kristen for her invaluable insight and experience and kind of telling us a little bit about her Uh, cases and clients. And so thanks for joining us. Thanks
1: for having me, Scott. So
0: make sure to check out all of the news and the information podcast videos uh, that are on mensdivorce.com. Check uh, Men's Divorce out on Facebook and Twitter at Men's Divorce News. And make sure to download our Men's Divorce Source app on the App Store. Again, thanks for joining us. I'm Scott Trout, CEO and managing partner of Cordell & Cordell. Hope this was helpful to you all out there. Until next time, have a great week.